0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is Do Markets Ever Fail? We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With these IPI Policy Basics podcast episodes, we are building an audio library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy, or who may need to get up to speed on a particular policy topic. And so today, we're going to talk about the issue of market failure. And our discussion today will be led by our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews.
1: So Tom, we're hearing a lot more these days, especially by people who really want to vastly expand the government, about market failures. And they're using this as a term to say something's wrong, and we need the government to step in and fix it. So market failure is a deal. So I thought we'd look at this and ask, what is a market failure and what are we talking about here? So let's first distinguish between two different types, the academic definition of a market failure, as opposed to the common usage, especially what we're hearing these days. The basic definition of a market failure is a market failure refers to the inefficient distributions of goods and services in the free market. Uh, and that is what in economics we call a state of disequilibrium. And, and what it means is things aren't working out well. There's something happening. And, and we see this here recently in the, um, in the issue of supply chains, right? We've had a, an issue where we've got shortages out there. People are trying to buy things. Companies are gearing up to try to do that. But it's that's in large part because the pandemic shut things down. And so the supply and demand aren't equaling outright. That's a, a disequilibrium in the market. Uh, but it's not because of any failure of markets. It's because the government actually shut down the economies in most places. And it takes a little while to ramp that back up.
0: Right. It's not a structural failure. It's not an essential failure. It's a failure that is explained by a temporary external disruption.
1: Right. In the free market, a disequilibrium like that is usually resolved in a relatively short period of time. And we see that happening right now as various companies are trying to gear up, get the uh, shipping going and other things to meet the demand that's out there right now. If demand is stronger than supply... Prices uh, eventually uh, start to rise, and that's what we're seeing in the supply chain stuff. If supply outpaces demand, then we typically see prices fall and supply usually decreases in order to sort of create that equilibrium again that we expect to see and that they talk about among academics. So there is an academic versus the popular discussion academic economists usually discuss market failure in the context of economic theory uh, that includes concepts like perfect competition these are terms that generally are not part of the public right. discussion out right. there and they concede that there are there are times when there are market failures in some areas usually where the actions of one or more people have an adverse impact on others for instance uh, the economist Jagdish Bhagwati in his reference to in the concise Encyclopedia of Economics says, and I'm quoting, a market failure arises, for example, when polluters do not have to pay for the pollution they produce, but such market failures are distortions and can arise from governmental action as well. So what he's talking about here is, let's say I, I own a, a home and I'm downstream from, some, from a business that's just a little bit upstream, and that business is putting a lot of pollution, a lot of stuff into the stream, and it's coming down, and I get my water from that stream. But the water that's coming down is polluted or corrupted in some way. The business that's doing that doesn't have to pay for those costs. It's just simply using that as a free way to get rid of their pollution, but it's affecting me downstream. And so they talk about, academic economists talk about that as a market failure. Or, for instance, space debris. This is something we're going to be hearing about more and more. We've been engaged in in going into space since the 1950s. And since that time, especially in the 60s and so forth, we, we put things up there in space. Satellites, rockets have gone up there, material and so forth. Sometimes that stuff falls back to Earth and burns up, but sometimes it doesn't. And now that more countries and the private sector are getting involved in space, we're likely to find more and more space debris up there, which could end up, it's probably not a problem right now because there's so much space, but it's become, going to become a problem if we continue using space for more and more things. And the question is how do you get rid of that space debris? How do you get it out of there, and who's going to pay for that? So that becomes one of those issues where there is a market failure. There's no real way to do this because companies are able, companies and countries are able to do this and just use it sort of free.
0: You know, and because I and you as well are proponents of markets as solutions to problems. You know, I'm a little defensive on this whole <laughs> on this whole topic of market failure. So it strikes me that we ought to differentiate because you've already talked about a couple different kinds of market failure, right? right? The first kind you talked about. Was the idea of a temporary disruption from some ex- external force, right? And but literally, the market process solves that problem. All of the supply and demand, and the prices rising and, and falling—that's not market failure. That's actually market a market in action. And it right? doesn't
1: always do it immediately, right. as you say. A pro- it's a process, right. but it exactly. picks back up once you get the proper the proper uh, elements in
0: there to create the market. Yeah, and then the second kind of uh, market failure you described was sort of the idea that it's a failure because there is no market. Right. Right? Like when you're talking about space debris or when you're talking about um, pollution, this is sort of a classic sort of tragedy of the commons thing, right, where there's something that has entered the commons that is affecting everybody, but there's no market device or no market incentive to incentivize anyone to clean anything up.
1: And that's why Baguati calls it a distortion. It's Mm. really not a market failure per se. Right. It's just a distortion. It's a failure. It's a failure, but it's not really a market failure.
0: In fact, it might be the case that markets are actually the solution to that failure, right? Right. And this is why, you know, uh, free market folks have talked in the the past about things like pollution tax credits, where Mm -hmm. you actually attach a value to pollution, right, so that it can be priced in the market, and start to create some sort of incentives. This is why folks on the left talk about carbon pricing, right? Right. Because they, they see carbon pollution in the atmosphere through the very same lens, and no one has any incentive to do anything about it because there's no price attached to it. Right. So in a way, you know, our friends on the left actually want to advocate at least some forms of market devices by wanting to put a price on carbon.
1: Right, uh, but the popular now. So those are a couple of definitions, but the popular definition in the public discourse today is somewhat different. Essentially, big government types use the term "market failure" to mean any res, any result in the market they don't like. Yeah. So, for example, when Barack Obama was trying to move forth with a health care reform bill that ultimately was called Obamacare, he claimed that there was a market failure because people who were uninsured and ended up with a major medical condition, couldn't go out and buy health insurance from a, from a private sector company. Uh, he called that a market failure. I would say that's not a market failure at all. Insurance is set up to take people who face a risk, but it's an unmet risk yet. It's a potential risk, and then you you uh, sell that risk, part of that risk to the insurance company for a price which, if the risk actually does come about, then the insurance company comes in. So, uh, nobody seems to think that you ought to be able to go out. And buy a homeowner's policy after your for for your house after your house is is burned on fire down, right <laughs> <or> burned down. <laughs> nobody thinks you ought to be able to go out and have an auto accident and then call your uh, insurance agent and say, Joe, you know you're trying to sell me a, a car insurance policy. I'm going to take that thing and incidentally, so send me send me a bill for that. And incidentally, I've got a wreck and I need you <laughs> to pay for it. That's so insurance is there to take take on risk that has not occurred. And what Barack Obama wanted the insurance, the health insurance companies to do, it was to accept somebody with, with terminal cancer and begin paying their bills. Yep. And I remember this happened back in the 1980s in the issue of AIDS, as it was, AIDS was emerging. People were, ha- were being devastated by this certain populations were. And I still remember listening to an advocate for that community on the radio saying, our people need insurance and the insurance companies won't take us. Why aren't they there for us when we need them? And then I thought at the time, why weren't you there paying your insurance premiums? Right, right. Because that's what they're there to do. You pay the premiums. And then if the risk occurs, you're able to be able to do it. Back in the late nineties, I got a call from somebody who had developed lung cancer. And he said, I've got lung cancer and I didn't pay for health insurance because it just didn't feel like I wanted to, you know, I could afford it. And now I've got lung cancer and it may be terminal. And so I'm going out trying to get in health insurance and no insurance company will accept me. Yeah. What do I do? Right. And I said, I, it's, a, it's a terrible situation. I'm sorry to hear that you had that, but you waited too long. The risk has occurred and the insurance companies yeah. are not required to take you.
0: Yeah. The whole idea of insurance is not to just pay for every bad thing that happens, right? The whole idea of insurance is to guard against risk. And so you have to sort of be in the pool first, you know, rather than wait, wait, rather than wait till something goes wrong and then try to buy insurance. Now, this category that you're talking about now, this idea that the market is delivering a result that I don't like. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to call it a market failure. This is where I think 99 out of 100 times when we hear people talking about market failure, it's in this category, right? It's someone doesn't like the result that a market has delivered, and so they think it's a market failure. And I think about, for instance, like we have something like 96.4% of all American households have broadband available to Mm -hmm. them. It's available. It passes their home. Uh, They don't all buy it. There are households who, for whatever reason, choose not to buy broadband, but it passes their home, it's available to them, right? So we've got a lot of people out saying, oh, this is a terrible market failure. It's a terrible market failure. No, it's (laughs) it's not a market failure. In fact, it's an incredible market success that we have made broadband available to 96.4% of American households. If, If someone chooses not to pay for it, that's not a failure in the market. And it's also not a failure in the market that, okay, so what's 100 minus 96.4? So like 3.6% of American households don't have broadband. That's also not a market failure because those households exist in remote geographical areas, uh, distant rural areas where there's literally no business case to be made. There is no market for broadband in those areas. And so a lot of times in government policy, they see that kind of thing as a market failure. They blame the market. Whereas I think what we really ought to talk about is that the market is the best way to solve any possible problem that a market can address, right? But there are problems that a market can't address. And that's when you come in and look for sort of other alternative ways of sort of meeting those demands. But it's not a market failure just because you don't like the particular result that has come from a particular market.
1: So let's talk about a couple more of them. One is public education and what we pay teachers. And I frequently hear in discussions on this, teachers are so important in public education. They 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 take our kids and they try to educate them and we just don't pay them nearly much. They, they, are, pay, they are way underpaid for the value they bring to society. And that, they argue, is a market failure. Now, Teachers are not as underpaid as they used to be. Mm. Some teachers, especially who've been teaching for a while, can do fairly well. Uh, But having said that, entry-level teachers, and if you've been there for a a fairly short period of time, you probably don't make a lot of money. But that, again, is the market looking—and this is, of course, the government making these decisions— but there are people who are willing to work for that wage. It doesn't take a lot of education to be able to get to do that. It does take a lot of heart and willing to be willingness to be able to work with children. Mm-hmm. It's not a job that I would do, but it's a job that some people really, really love, and they've been able to find pe- teachers to be able to do it at the mark at the wage that the the state hires them at. Yeah. and so I would argue that that's not a market failure because you're able to find people who are willing to do that job at the prevailing wage
0: right if there If there were no one willing to teach for what a particular school district is willing to pay, then you might argue that there's a failure there, right? But as long as teachers are willing to work for whatever the salary is being offered, that's not a market failure. It may just be an alka. You may just partic- personally think that teachers ought to be paid more. I mean, you'll hear people say things like, you know, teachers, they ought to make the highest salaries in the economy because the, the job they do is so important. Well, one of the beautiful things about markets is that markets cut through rhetoric and they cut through emotion and they cut through sentiment, and they do a pretty good job of actually valuing things at the level that society values them. And, you know, if society really did think teachers ought to be the highest-paid people in society, they would be the highest-paid mm-hmm. people in society.
1: And, of course, if the government were not able to find teachers at the wage that they were willing to pay, right. the government would likely wa- raise the wage. Well, right. And so you'd see that sort of, as they raise the wage, you'd find people who would be willing to enter the market, mm-hmm. and you'd get that equilibrium of supply and demand.
0: And this is literally... Uh, what we're hearing right now in real time from, for instance, the Biden administration, when they hear about employers not being able to get enough people to come back into the market and work, when they hear about restaurants and hotels and things that can't get enough workers, you know, they sort of sit back and snidely say, well, then pay them more, you know, pay them a living wage, you know. So, like, even the Biden administration is sort of granting this point that, you know, markets work, and if you you can't get the employees and the skills you need at the price you're willing to pay – then you probably need to pay some more. And I've, it,
1: since we're talking about wages, mm-hmm. another one that I've seen arguments for is that the failure to pay fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage is a market failure. Mm-hmm uh because there's somebody thinks you ought to be able to make $15 an hour yeah. regardless of your skills, regardless of your education, regardless of your work habits and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh and so they argue that that's a that is a market failure yeah. and we have to have the government step in to do that. But the fact that the you know it, we have a $7.25 minimum wage, but very few people make that and far yeah. fewer make it today than did 4 or 5 years ago yeah. or 6 or 7 years ago. So it's, it's interesting that the um, the market has raised the wages because people demand it. They're going up even more now as people are coming back from the pandemic. Mm. But again, just because I, as a big government person who thinks there needs to be a really high minimum wage set by the government, and the government hasn't done that, or businesses aren't offering that in every case, that is not a market failure. That is, in fact, a market working as companies and, uh, try to find people for uh, and offer salaries. And if they are able to get people to those salaries, then that works for you.
0: And, you know, I hate to be Johnny one note on this, but markets are a process. They're not simply a given slice in time. So right now, as we record this podcast, for about the last three months, we've been hearing about, for instance, how expensive lumber has become. Mm -hmm. And it's become so expensive to build houses and builders are having to like stop building houses because the cost of raw materials is so high. Well, for the last three days, the story in the news has been about how lumber prices are plummeting. Yes, I they're, saw that. They're plummeting, because right? Because people were hoarding it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So was it a market failure when lumber prices were higher than people thought they ought to be? Is it a market failure now when prices are plummeting? No, neither of those are failures. That's just markets reflecting supply and demand and things like that. I, if you, If we've got time, I've got like a couple of other examples of things that have commonly been called market failures that, that I think we would say is just like the market in action, mm-hmm. right? If you go back and think about a few years ago with the whole issue of uh, music availability digitally and Napster and all that kind of thing, you had these piracy music services that came online where you could just download music for free and the record labels and the owners of copyrighted music and stuff like that were screaming about how this piracy and how it was hurting them, Right. Well, the defenders of the piracy would say, "Hey, you know, we're just trying to deal with a market failure. You don't make our, you don't make your product available to us at an affordable level." And the record, which com- was free, <laughs> yeah, which was free, unlimited and free, right? And the record companies retorted, "Was if you will simply allow us to protect our own intellectual property, we will make it available abundantly and affordably." Mm-hmm. Now, you fast forward to today and look at streaming. Look at streaming of music, look at Spotify and Apple Music and things like that. Look at streaming of movies and television shows, Netflix and all that. They, the, the record labels, the movie studios, the owners of content they were good to their word. I mean, they said, look, if you will actually allow us to protect our content, we will make it available.
1: I remember when Apple came up and said, we're going to charge 99 cents, I think it right. was for a song. Right. And people, oh, well, that, that actually becomes affordable. Yeah,
0: and we're not going to make you buy an album with 12 songs on it when you only really like two of those songs, mm-hmm. right? We're not going to force you to do that anymore. So. There were lots of people that justified piracy on the basis of market failure, but the fact is there was no market at all. There was no digital market for, for copyrighted stuff because they were people were unwilling to respect the copyright. As soon as that was put in place, suddenly you had this enormous market that developed. So it wasn't a market failure. It's the difference between the absence of a market and then the presence of a market.
1: And so the people who we hear claim market failure usually are going to be big government types who say we have to have the government step in. So Ryan Bourne of the Cato Institute, he is describing what what people think of as market failure. And I'm quoting now proponents of intervention then jump into assuming that government can correct these failures by providing goods and services or by imposing taxes, regulations or mandates. Indeed, Thinking of market failure as an aberration from perfect competition implies that markets can be perfected through targeted intervention. The expansive definition of market failure is thus crucial in justifying interventionist policies. And what he's getting at here is that there's an assumption behind all of these big government proposals uh, that the government government bureaucrats know how to provide these needs know how to be able to address the supply chains, bring everything together, set the price, f- find the things that people want and need, and set a price that is appropriate for them. And then once you get the market involved, minimum wage, mm-hmm. uh, public education, health insurance, and so forth, you solve all these problems because the government can address the problems of market failures.
0: You know, we, we've touched on on this on several of our Policy Basics podcasts. We did a Policy Basics podcast on the knowledge problem, this idea that government assumes it knows how a certain industry ought to work mm-hmm. or what competition ought to look like, and the fact is that that you ha- you don't have enough knowledge and information to make those choices. We did another podcast on the topic of uh, markets are not perfect, they're just better than the alternatives, right? And so this reminds me, for instance, of government bureaucrats who will say things like, in most areas, there's only two... Providers of broadband, right? There's a cable company and there's a phone company, and you'll have you'll have government types looking at that and saying that's not competition. You really need like at least maybe like five or six competitors for it to really be competition, right? Well, who says? I mean, that's just something you're pulling out of thin air. Mm-hmm. You're ju- you're just pulling out of thin air. I think there ought to be five or six competitors. What the market is telling us is it is so expensive. It is incredibly expensive. It is incredibly capital-intensive to build and maintain these broadband networks. And it may be that what the, the only competition you can have in something that that capital-intensive is two or maybe three competitors. So that's what the market tells us. So here you have this big gap between what the market is telling us from the bottom up, right, and then what some bureaucrat just pulls a number out of the air from the top down and says, I think there ought to be five competitors. And so you get, these, you get, for instance, these antitrust crusaders who say, well, we need to break up these big companies. The basis of that argument is this idea that I think there ought to be more competitors, right? Mm-hmm. I think X company's too big. I think two competitors in a market is not enough. I think there ought to be six. And this is all arbitrary stuff they're pulling out of the air. It's, all, it's their personal opinion. It has no empirical basis whatsoever. It has no market basis. The market is simply telling them something that they don't like. And so they assume in their arrogance somehow that a government intervention is needed in order to shape this industry the way they think it ought to be shaped. Whereas really, it's just simply a matter of fact that the result that the market delivers to them disagrees with what they think.
1: Now, the alternative, because there is an alternative, what do you do? How do you address this problem? So as you mentioned... uh, about ninety-six percent of the population has access to high-speed broadband. Uh, that's, I would argue, that's pretty good. But what do you do about the four percent? And you mentioned well, they may they may be living in rural areas so far out they can't. So and the same thing true was true with health insurance. Prior to Obamacare, mm-hmm. uh, there were some people who were uninsured, got a major major medical condition, wanted to get insurance. The insurance companies wouldn't take it, and so that is where it's uh, oftentimes not necessarily always, but oftentimes appropriate for the government to step in with a safety net that will meet needs of people that society says we think we think these people ought to be able to have their needs met mm-hmm. and that was true with health care people sort of felt like look even if you're uninsured and you have a major medical condition you can't afford health insurance you can't buy it we society still needs to be able to take care of these people so right. at that time 35 states had stepped in to create what we called a high risk pool these were states contracting with an insurance company in the state to provide health insurance for people who were uninsured and had a major medical condition and could not get health insurance. Now, that was a a very small percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. It wasn't all of the uninsured. Most of the uninsured could go out and buy insurance. They just chose not to. A third of the uninsured were able to go into Medicaid. They were children who were eligible for Medicaid, but their parents didn't put them in. Or they were between jobs or uh, or things like that, right? Between jobs, or they had incomes. They just didn't want to buy health insurance. Right. Uh, but there was a small percentage of people who were uninsured and uninsurable, and so they had high-risk pools to be able to meet those needs. Uh, so there are safety nets that the government can— uh, can. but the principle here is let the market function for the vast majority of people that it will function for, mm-hmm. and then if there is still a percentage that needs some kind of uh, of— product or service that the public thinks this is really important, we want to make sure they have access to that, then you come up with a safety net program where either the government contracts with a private sector company or the government provides it, and then you fill that need rather than trying to readjust the whole market.
0: So the distinction here I think that you're making is if you have a situation where the market is doing a pretty good job, Mm -hmm. but there's still gaps, right? Instead of calling that a market failure, instead of going there with a government solution that disrupts everything. Right. Which, go, say, which is what they did on health care. Which is what they do almost every time on everything, yeah. right? Uh, go in with a distinct targeted government program that simply addresses the gaps. And to your credit, I remember when the ACA Obamacare discussions were going on, you were a big proponent of there are ways to address the problems of the uninsured mm-hmm. that will not turn the entire health care market upside down. But instead, we had to go the direction that turns the entire healthcare market upside down. There were ways to address the problem of the uninsured that did not disrupt the enormous majority of the healthcare market that was actually quite happy right. with, <laughs> with, with the situation, with the insurance that they had, right? So, you know, even though we are limited government folks, I mean we would always acknowledge that there's a role for government in addressing Problems and gaps where markets are not succeeding in addressing it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean the market has failed, and it doesn't mean someone needs to go in from the top down from the government and try to totally remake a marketplace.
1: Right. Don't make companies do what the companies are not intended to do, right. which is reach out to people at high prices where they lose money.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Let them let the market work, and then fi- if, there, is the, if there's a segment there which is not having a, a need met— and society believes it should be, uh, then you may then you may want to have some kind of government program to meet that need it's much less expensive it's much less disruptive that's not what they did on Obamacare but right. that's that's the way to solve the problem
0: and in fairness it's also not what uh, it's not what President Bush did on the prescription drug benefit either right right I mean similarly there were ways to do a targeted program that simply addressed the very small, relatively small number of people who couldn't afford their prescriptions.
1: Right. People on Medicare, if I remember right, roughly 70, 75 percent had prescription drug coverage. Mm-hmm. And there were some who didn't necessarily want it at the time. Right. But the Republicans at the time said, no, we are not going to do a limited target targeted approach to address that need we're going to make sure that everybody is in the program.
0: Right. We're going to create a new entitlement. And in in fairness, that particular program has worked out maybe better than we thought it might have. But it's still an example of this wrong approach of saying, to address a relatively limited problem, we're going to come up with a huge, expansive solution.
1: And I would argue that the only reason it worked out better than we thought is because they pro- contacted with private sector companies yeah. to provide the insurance. And so they've essentially moved to a program where they're using the safety net for everybody. Yeah. But um, they there are people who don't like that and they want to get the private sector out because they think the government can do a better job of providing prescription drugs at a lower cost yeah. than the private sector drug makers and the private sector insurers that provide those products.
0: So it, is it fair to say that, that we generally think that most of the time when someone's talking about a market failure, they're either talking about a situation where there actually is no market at all, right, or you're talking about a situation where uh, there's some small gap that the market is not addressing or you end up with a situation where some government bureaucrat or some egghead just simply doesn't like the way a market's working and thinks they know better.
1: Right. So in most of the cases these days, when somebody's talking about a market failure, the real failure is for that person who's arguing that to understand how the economy really works. (laughs)
0: That's right. Yep, yep. I think that's probably correct. Well, you can find a lot more on the role of Markets at our website at IPI.org. I hope that you're enjoying these policy basics podcasts and I hope that you're finding them to be useful. If you are, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? Please tell your friends, please share them on social media and you can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's giving society. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time.